0: Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan.
1: Hey Arch. how are you doing today?
0: I'm good, I'm looking forward to a, uh, a wide-ranging chat
1: ready for a deep in the philosophical weeds episode i feel like we have to do these every you know every couple months to get us back
0: to our philosophical roots yeah we've had a couple of weeks of like right on point we're all over medibank all over the hacks you know all the policy and legal developments
1: practical business decisions about
0: ransomware all of that stuff now we're talking about effective altruism. Exactly. We're going to talk about this, this movement that's captured the attention of a lot of people recently. But the starting point for it is one of the biggest stories that has been in the media over the last month or so, which is the collapse of FTX which is one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. And there's obviously a big scandal around that collapse and around the founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. So uh, we're going to get into that, but it's going to, as you say, lead us into a broader conversation about effective altruism, which many people have sort of attached to Sam Bankman-Fried, or I should probably flip that around and say, Sam Bankman-Fried has attached himself to this idea of effective altruism. The
1: connection there is he's been... A bit of a face of some of these ideas and bankrolled quite a few kind of big effective altruism type projects, you know, responsible AI kind of things. So while he was ridiculously wealthy, he's very much not ridiculously wealthy anymore. We'll get to that. But yeah, Sam Bankman Fried's been kind of funneling cash out of his crypto businesses or as crypto profits into kind of effective altruism causes so that's kind of the
0: pathway exactly it is the pathway but it also we were interested in it because it seems to speak to some broader concerns and issues we have about the techosphere and some of the proponents out of silicon valley that are trying to reshape the universe in their image we will get into that, but as you said, let's start with uh, FTX. What happened? What was it? Well, FTX was the third largest cryptocurrency exchange. Um Essentially, it's an app uh, or a platform for users to buy, sell, and hold, and trade cryptocurrency. It was founded by a guy called Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, he's only 30 years old, uh graduate of MIT. This exchange has been remarkably popular. It claimed to have about $10 billion of daily trading, about a billion dollars of annual revenue, $40 billion of equity value in the business, and an estimated 1.2 million registered users who are using it to buy crypto. So really made a big splash in the crypto world. But also beyond that, it was getting quite a bit of mainstream exposure to the extent that it was the sort of platform that had Super Bowl ads there was major sponsorships the Miami Heat basketball team stadium was called FTX Arena they were sponsoring the Mercedes Benz Formula 1 team they had celebrity endorsements from everyone including Tom Brady Giselle Bunchen Steph Curry Naomi Osaka very high profile But attached to that profile was also this sense of them being a very responsible, kind of well-meaning organization. So they were very much a darling of the crypto industry, had this association with doing good works, but also... In the midst of sort of the crypto winter, they were also stepping in to bail out other crypto companies going bankrupt. So a bit of a saviour for the other crypto people as well.
1: Yeah, they kept on being held up as the example of crypto done right, responsibly. And people like me would say, "Crypto's a scam, don't get into it. And people would point to FTX and a couple of other big exchanges saying, no, no, they're transparent, they're well-regulated, they're responsible business enterprises, yeah.
0: And that's where our story gets interesting. (laughs) Uh, uh,
1: Yeah, and then what happened, right? Well... All of that changed literally over two weeks at the start of November. FTX went from being this darling of the industry to filing for bankruptcy and owing their customers literally billions of dollars. It's it's quite complex and we won't get too into it, but essentially what happened is FTX has a sister company called Alameda Research, also owned by Sam bankman fried There was a Report by a, a crypto news website that had gotten to look at the Alameda balance sheets and got a bit worried about their viability as a company. Essentially, they had a whole lot of their own stock or stock in FTX. That if that crashed, then you know they'd have nothing left, kind of thing. So you know that left, led to some questions about FTX and Alameda's viability, which led to a whole bunch of people trying to pull their money out of FTX, or the people using the platform to trade crypto try to get their money. That leads to kind of a classic bank run. There's People tried to withdraw $6 billion from FTX over like three days. So FTX runs out of liquid money. They can't honor all of their withdrawals. That then leads to a freeze on withdrawals and a whole bunch of media attention and kind of scrutiny of the FTX accounts, which then leads to people realizing that actually FTX might not have been so well managed and regulated as we first thought. There's reporting from the Wall Street Journal and from others that suggests that FTX had been taking deposits from customers and instead of holding them, as you maybe should do if you're putting yourself up as a bank or a brokerage, lending them out to that sister company, Alameda Research. That sister company had then been making really risky bets on crypto investments and losing the money. And so it turns out FTX is short about $8 billion, billion billion with a B, of customer money that had gone into the exchange to buy and trade crypto, but then had been passed out to the sister company to be used for trading. So FTX naturally files for bankruptcy. A liquidator is appointed. One of my favorite things about this whole story is the name of the liquidator, which is this guy called John J. Ray III. (laughs) Uh, He's like big in the big company restructuring and liquidating game. He was the guy who took over Enron when they failed. He had this great line about just how awfully managed fdx was which is never in my career never in my career from the guy who took over enron Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information, as occurred here, from compromised systems integrity to faulty regulatory oversight abroad, to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals. This situation is unprecedented. That from the guy who restructured Enron. So it turns out that you know behind the slick trading exterior behind the slick presentation of FTX there was just nothing you know like like all of these kinds of really basic corporate controls, risk management, financial system controls that you would expect in any organization that's handling like literally billions of dollars. None of that existed. It was just this company run on like Slack chat rooms and shared documents and none of the paperwork was getting done. And, you know, money went missing, billions of dollars went missing and the whole thing collapsed.
0: I have great sympathy for anyone that was affected by it. I have found it hard to engage with the story of the, the collapse because without any sort of, you know, hubris, it just, it seems so obvious. <laughs> it just seems so unsurprising that another crypto organization, you know, fr- from this kind of uh, space where trust is not necessary, where, you know, regulation is not necessary, where checks and balances and controls and oversight and third parties are deemed excess to a system that this should happen. I mean, it seems like, of course, this would happen.
1: I'd echo that sympathy for the people affected right like the phase that crypto has been in over the last year or so has been like mainstreaming it's been appealing to the broader mom and dad type investors people trying to get ahead in the world and that was ftx's target market that uh super bowl ad that you mentioned it describes ftx as a safe and easy way to get into crypto the whole shtick of the ad is like they go through history of people who missed out on great innovations a guy invents the wheel and shows it to someone the other guy's like ah oh, that's not going to catch on then edison ev- invents electricity or whatever and shows it to someone and he's like ah oh, that's not going to catch on I don't, I don't need to be involved and then cryptos the next one they're trying to you know get this like general audience feeling that they've missed out a large portion of those people, the, the 1.2 million registered users, are going to be average Joes who've, you know, your money's just disappeared. You know, this is what happens when you don't have all of those troublesome... Regulations and things causing friction in traditional financial systems. Like, there's a reason that you have, you know, auditors and controls over financial records and who can move stuff around and who can access it. And
0: so, there's much discussion now about, you know, potential criminal proceedings and, you know, all sorts of things. But we have to remember that the desired state for most people that advocate for crypto is. You know, some sort of universe where none of that is policed. It all happens on the blockchain. So I think it's been well reported that some of the biggest proponents of crypto are now in advocating for this grey zone where there is regulation because they they realise it's necessary for some base level of confidence in the ecosystem. The
1: philosophy is that let's invent our new, you know, regulated by code libertarian kind of environment. And then that environment goes wrong in very obvious ways that the traditional financial system discovered hundreds of years ago, they're just like progressively making all of the same mistakes that we've already made and reinventing all of these like same controls and so on. The other lesson that I had from this was I see a real analogy between FTX and like a lot of other Silicon Valley type tech solutions that get pitched to our clients or to businesses or to us, you get these folks turning up with their magical AI resume scanner to help you recruit or their, you know, magic AI solution to your filing problems, whatever problem your business is having, whatever challenge there is, there's a Silicon Valley type, you know, magical AI solution for it. They often do have this really slick, really pretty, apparently really well put together exterior. But it's a black box. You know, you can't see exactly how it works. FTX is such a good example of the slick, well-presented exterior, the famous people and news articles about how good it is and and how responsible they are. When in reality, it was like a bunch of dudes in a resort in the bahamas with like no oversight no expertise in running a financial institution from now on every time i see someone pitching a technical solution to a problem that i have i'm gonna think is this an ftx or can you provide to me actual evidence that your thing is solving the problem or not introducing new problems Moving to effective altruism, I want to take two threads with us. One is this Sam Bankman-Fried dude, outrageously wealthy kind of guy funding a lot of effective altruism, we'll get to what that is, initiatives. The other is this sense of presentation of a thing. Greenwashing or, you know, tech washing, I don't know what you call it, but but this sense of putting a particular face on a product and focusing everyone's attention over here on the positives rather than digging deeply into it. That's kind of the frame for this next bit on effective altruism. So, okay, what's effective altruism? It's a philosophy in a movement that kind of focuses on charitable and altruistic activities. The term effective altruism kind of goes back about a decade. Its origins in Oxford University philosophers like Peter Singer and this guy called William McCaskill. Give it a Google. There's lots of kind of very well-presented TED Talks about it. There are two ideas, effective and altruism. The altruism bit is essentially to say, look, suffering is bad. If there's something that you can do to prevent something bad happening without sacrificing anything massive for you personally, then, well, probably you should do that thing. It's very beginning is this thought experiment from Peter Singer, which is essentially, if you're walking past a pond, shallow pond, and a child is drowning in that pond, you're wearing like your new suit and fancy shoes and you really don't want to get in the pond, but a child is drowning and you could wade into the pond and save the kid. You should probably do that. It's going to cost you the suit and the shoes, whatever, but you can obviously save someone. That's worth way more. And you can kind of expand that out to your kind of privileged life that I lead. I could donate, you know, a hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks to a aid organization that will literally save people's lives, mosquito nets, famine, hunger, whatever. And it wouldn't materially affect my quality of life. And so morally, I should do it. If I donate money, the effective bit... Is this focus on like, what is the best way of donating money? Where should I put that money in a way that's going to generate the most benefit? It's kind of this push towards a more rigorous assessment of what causes are worth supporting, using evidence and data, pushing away the emotive component and focusing on how can we quantify our impact and how can we have the most impact.
0: I guess from that definition, when you hear the proponents of effective altruism talk, they typically kind of frame up the way to think about what is an effective altruism cause. It's causes that are big challenges. So the local charity that needs your help is not going to fit the effective altruism bucket. It's not a big enough challenge. You know, we're talking about global scale things. It's solvable. So obviously it needs to be something that is a tractable issue and that this idea that it's maybe neglected. So every dollar you spend, if you're putting it on top of already billions of dollars spent on a challenge, well, that's not going to be as effective. So big solvable neglected challenges. And that seems to kind of point A lot of effective altruism causes towards things like global health. So you hear a lot of conversation about efforts to prevent the next pandemic. Factory farming is another big one. And then the next one, which is where we start to get to sort of our space, is this idea of existential threats. So there's this kind of focus in effective altruism around solving things that are going to be existentially threatening to humanity and will impact us significantly and potentially catastrophically in the future. So AI is the pet cause in this space, this idea that with Artificial general intelligence imminent, according to these guys. We need to think about the safety of AI. So lots of money going into research into safe AI. Open philanthropy is one example of an effective altruism charitable organization. They've put $260 million into this. And then you've got very prominent billionaire names like Elon Musk, Vitalik Buterin, Dustin Moskowitz, and Sam Bankman-Fried pouring billions of dollars into safe AI. This focus on existential threats ties into this other term that you sometimes hear around effective altruism, which is this idea of long-termism. And it's this idea that we should maybe be thinking more about solving problems that will affect future humans over problems that we face today. And it's this idea that if you think about all the humans that have lived but that are going to live, there's many more that are going to live than have lived. And so there's a moral imperative to actually think about solving those existential future Based threats more than there is about solving current threats
1: this is where this effective altruism and long-termism stuff really goes off the rails right um, or for me anyway this idea of what we are future humans you very rapidly with this long-termism thinking get to this point where you say well an existential threat like malicious ai could end society that will prevent, over the next 100 years, like 100 billion people getting born and living happy lives. So why would I care about the 1 billion people who are starving today? Let's not worry about them. This is where Elon Musk gets a lot of his focusing on making humanity a multi-planetary species and colonies on mars and stuff when you do the maths with billions of potential future humans and looking after their well-being and their existence you start being able to justify spending money on going to mars spending money on ai research instead of spending money on, say, addressing the pain and suffering that's in the
0: world today. That's where this movement has, as you say, goes off the rails, but it feels like it's where it's also started to have been co-opted by... A certain type of person, a certain type of tech billionaire, away from the likes of the Peter Singers and those philosophical traditions you were talking about, because you're starting to get this thought process, which we see in just generally in tech. This is where it like aligns up nicely with tech, which is this genius mentality of being able to see into the future, being able to know what's coming, being able to solve these big extraterrestrial, multiplanetary problems with technology. It's suddenly given a A veneer of we're doing it to save the future of humanity when really, to a large extent, it just feels like an ego trip. It's like I am the genius in the room that can see into the future. We've all heard the threats and the risks around robots taking over and AI taking over. I genuinely, personally, think it is something we have to keep an eye on. But the idea that you would put tens of billions, hundreds of billions of research into that over and above. The current and real problems we face, even with AI today, like the actual day-to-day harm that just very ho-hum, boring applications of AI are causing today is perverse.
1: When we're talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, we talked about this kind of desire to deal with things as engineering problems. If there's an engineering problem, there's a path to solution. It's a simple world. I've got a simple problem. I've got a simple solution. A lot of the problems that we face today are not just engineering problems, right? They're people, they're political, they're geopolitical, they're problems of collective action and consensus, and they are fundamentally people problems. And this is a way of getting away from that, the way these ideas of effective altruism and long-termism have kind of been used to shift a focus and to justify incredible expenses on these problems that are very much not immediate ones.
0: The other concern with effective altruism, which I think ties us back to the FDX story, is this idea that it encourages a certain brand of thinking, this idea that we should fund these big gambits. We should put money into these big existential, futuristic Charitable causes, and that is the end. And the way we get there doesn't matter. You know, the Sam Bankman Freed version of effective altruism was he went into crypto with the view of I want to make lots and lots of money because I have been indoctrinated into this view that I can make lots and lots of money because I'm going to give a lot of it away into these causes. I'm going to put it into these future of AI type causes. And it's this very utilitarian view where it's like, it doesn't matter how I make the money. What matters is that I'm going to give it to the causes at the end. And so the seeds were planted in that kind of FTX story, which is that... There was no real thought of what am I doing today? How am I making the money? All that matters is that I'm telling the world that at the end of it, I'm going to give this money to these causes.
1: You saw that throughout the life cycle of, say, Facebook and other big Silicon Valley tech companies, that their mission is to connect the whole world. Our mission is to save people. Our mission is to do this great good thing that only we can do. And so it breeds this antagonism to criticism and antagonism to regulation, because like, who are you to criticize what I'm doing? What I'm doing is saving the world. And the kind of concrete example of that is, there's this piece recently by Timnit Gebru, I might be pronouncing that wrong, apologies, in Wired. She's an AI researcher that was quite publicly fired from Google, I think earlier this year, over a paper that she'd written about essentially the problem with large language models and AI and the risks of AI large language models. She, in this piece in Wired that we'll link, really gets into kind of how this saving humanity ideology is shaping the kind of direction of research in AI and actually preventing focus in that same way on the concrete real problems that AI is facing now. So the current kind of frontiers of AI research are, you know, these large language models, these chatbots that are so good that people can get confused that they're sentient. And these text to image models, the kind of stable diffusion and DALI that you can, you know, give them a prompt and they'll give you a beautiful looking picture. These technologies have these real concrete problems right now. They can output hateful text, distribute disinformation on mass. these text-to-image models can perpetuate bias and reinforce stereotypes, do all these kind of really problematic things, which we're not thinking about. You know, the billions of dollars of research is into the 20-year time horizon, how do we make friendly general intelligence, not currently how do we stop the cutting-edge research from harming people.
0: Which also speaks to the risk and the liability of this view of altruism that like we're going to only chase problems that we deem are worth it based on data you know we're going to be more rigorous in kind of you know rabbit quotes about the causes but the data that that is being selected to inform that decision and the people that are making that decision are also a narrow cohort that drives you to skew what problems you want to solve in the world the small cohort of rich tech billionaires have a particular experience of the world that they should be dictating what are the most effective and important problems to solve is problematic they're never gonna i don't think lay out a a solution for structural problems that exist in society they're never going to lay out a you know a solution that looks at disenfranchised and marginalized groups
1: it's like Data Ethics 101, we've been doing a lot of work and a lot of development and discussion of data ethics, recently. And question one is, who's in the room? What are their biases? What are their focuses? Who's missing from the room? Who are our vulnerable consumers that don't have a voice here? Who's this going to affect that we're not thinking about at the moment? What are the problems that we're going to generate for them that we're not thinking about? And it's exactly that, right? It's this echo chamber of folks who are focused on the problems that excite them without any sense of real difficult challenges that other people would like to be
0: You need to be enfranchising more voices, bringing more people into the room, and effective altruism seems to go the other way, which is like, you know, a smaller number of people making decisions with larger sums of money that impact more people. For me, there are a couple take homes.
1: One is this sense of like, how do we think about ethics and how do we think about outcomes and what do we focus on? And, you know, again, Data Ethics 101 is broad range of voices, broad range of considerations, right, opening up that canvas of considerations to who might this impact, how might this harm them, is there stuff that we're not? Taking into account? Is there, are, is there stuff that we should be focusing on that we're not? So, making that broad conversation and that broad set of values. And the other is giving a healthy level of skepticism to these slick outer presentations, the stories that get told to you about how crypto is going to change the financial markets, that our product is trustworthy, that AI is going to solve your problems. You know, let's have a a healthy degree of scepticism of those claims.
0: For me, there's a cautionary tale in the fact that so much of this is around FTX has been focused on the evil guy, Sam Bankman-Fried... To the extent that he's culpable, sure, but I actually think there's a way for us to miss the bigger point by thinking that it was one guy who wasn't doing the right thing. There's actually sort of a broader way that we think about solving these problems that we need to be more skeptical of and be be mindful of.
1: I'm right there with you with the personality thing. If this was a bank, even Optus, right, like Optus Medibank failures, you don't, go to the CEO and say, you know, how could you have done this? You say, well, how did we let this happen? How did the organization let this happen? First of all, but where was the oversight? Where was the control like? How do we let people be harmed in this way?
0: I feel like most of our conversation today has been about those things, but um, it's something I think to be mindful of. Even when we talk about Musk, as tempting as it is to rail against Musk, because it's just so easy to do, there's a bigger story that he represents as well.
1: Yeah, right. What are we doing collectively to prevent the harms? That's an uplifting note to end on, Arj. Let's get back to it next week. Maybe with a more down-to-earth topic, we'll see.
0: I'll uh, look forward to chatting next time. Yeah, talk to you next week.